Hey everybody, this is Chris and Jason from Silver Solutions Podcast. Join us as we chat with people from around the globe as they share their real life stories of recovery. If you like what you hear, please like and subscribe so you can easily find us and our latest episodes. And welcome back to Sober Solutions Podcast. Tonight is episode 57. And I apologize in advance. I do have a nasty chest cold. So I uh, hope that doesn't interrupt the, the show tonight at all. But tonight we have an awesome guest. We have Tom C. from Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Hey, Tom, how are you? Hey, Jason. Doing good. Thanks. It's good to see you. I got to meet Tom when we were in a couple of the Zoom rooms during COVID, uh, during the Philadelphia meetings. So it's good to see you again, Tom. You too. Yeah, it was good to get a dose of hometown sobriety uh, in Zoom. Awesome. Awesome. I love that. Well, I know you're going to be diving into your story and talking about your topic tonight, which is really the challenges of long-term recovery. But you know, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself tonight? Sure. My name's Tom. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is November 14th, 1992. So I'm coming up on 30 years in just about a month. I grew up actually outside of Philadelphia, the suburbs, blue collar family, Irish Catholic. Dad was in the Marine Corps and was very much a weekend warrior. So my mom's dad was an alcoholic and my dad's mom was an alcoholic. So any number of other extended family members as well. Alcohol was always around in our house growing up. I'm the middle child of an older brother and a younger sister. She and I are Irish twins. We're only like 14 months apart. My brother's two years older than I am. So growing up, fairly stable household. There was no abuse, anything like that. Dysfunctional as most families are. But, you know, again, when I hear other people's stories. I count myself lucky that I didn't have any of that in my life. The first time I got drunk, I was about 12 years old. We were at a wedding of a family friend and my dad came over with a pitcher of beer in his hand and he put it down on the table and he said, drink up boys to me and my brother. So like that was just kind of like, yeah, Uh, here's my dad encouraging us to drink. So my brother and I did just that. I don't remember how much I drank, probably not that much because I was still pretty young. And we got pretty blasted. And I went home, had the bed spins and proceeded, of course, to get sick. My mother, who grew up with an alcoholic father, not an abusive alcoholic father, a very sweet, sweet man. He was his, when he got drunk, he just talked a lot. He was a good man. But anyway... She has no time for drunk people. So she uh, was put out with all of us because my dad and my brother were cleaning it up, trying to be quiet so she didn't find out. And, you know, we just lived in this tiny little house. Anyway, uh, so that's the first time I got drunk. But like drinking in my family, I was always a little bit torn about it because my dad, you know, when he got drunk, he and my mom would fight. and But at the same time, my dad's, I see him having a good time and, you know, drinking with his buddies and almost revering beer. Whenever he would spill a beer, somebody would spill a beer, he'd say, oh, build a shrine. So as I got older, I 
did the old, you know, I don't want to be like him because, you know, I could see what an asshole he was when he was drunk and my parents would fight. I started drinking more regularly in high school. Lily White, suburban boy, my buddies and I just somehow managed to get beer. And like every weekend it was not a matter of what we're going to do, but where we're going to do it when we're underage. Where are we going to get beer? Where are we going to drink it? And we always managed to find spots. Made it through high school, went off to college, and that's when my drinking really took off. I can remember consciously building my tolerance because my friends would, they used to tease me and call me two beer Tom because I would have a couple beers and I would throw up and pass out. But like I worked on that diligently. Then I couldn't wait till I blacked out because my friends would be like, oh my God, I don't remember a thing. And I'd be like, oh, that's so cool. I want to do that. So like I couldn't wait. I remember the first time it happened. I was like, wow, that was actually pretty cool. So like that became my goal was to to get drunk until I blacked out every time I drank. And I achieved that goal. So I, again, college, just kind of like the typical party guy. I graduated, did okay. I could have done a lot better, but the party was always the more important thing. Drinking for me made me feel free, made me feel funny, made me feel attractive. You know, everything that a lot of uh, people say that alcohol does, you know, your inhibitions go away. I'm not going to say that I didn't have good times because I did. I had I had a hell of a lot of fun with my friends in my 20s. I had a ball. Flash forward, I was 26 and I was just coming out of the closet. My drinking really kind of ramped up with that. A lot of that was wrapped up in coming out. My dad was sick. He got cancer. And I'm dealing with the emotions of that and the emotions of coming out. So one night I was coming out to my group of friends um, that I've known since high school, and I'm still in touch with most of them, actually. And the guy who was my best friend uh, said to me, we were all, it was like a drink-a-ton. We had been drinking for hours, and I was kind of in and out of a blackout. And we were back at my buddy's place, and his wife was pregnant with their first baby, and um he said to me, um, you know, most of my friends were fine with being gay. So you can keep in mind, this was back in 92. So there was no will and grace. There was no gay marriage. You know, it was still frowned upon, let's say. <laughs> he said, I don't care that you're gay. I just hope you understand if I don't want you to hold my baby. Right. So this is what he says to me. I'm drunk, of course, and I throw a fit. Um, they're saying, you know, I grab my keys and they say, Tom, 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 you know, don't drive, don't drive. And I was like, I'm not staying somewhere. That's a hateful, horrible thing to say. <laughs> and so I got my car, started driving home and I got into an accident. I didn't make a curb, plowed into the curb and pushed my axle back, but I was able to drive it into a parking spot. And I actually called that guy to come and rescue me. I didn't know what to do. I was so drunk. He and another buddy came and took me home. From what I remember, I'm all in and out of that. And then when I came to, the next day, I realized what had happened. Meaning I I often call that moment the, you know, the divine two by four for my higher power because I didn't die. I didn't kill anyone else. And I didn't even get arrested. Like, I was fine. My car was totaled, but 
everything else was fine. And I realized, okay, I don't drink like a normal person. And I only will likely get that once. Like that will only happen once. Next time, somebody will die. And I just want to say quickly that that friend of mine who said that, he's still very much in my life. He's made amends to me. He has really worked on himself and we're as close as ever. So like, and that means a lot to me because he really did, uh, did the work for that because we had another falling out um, years later. But as I said, I, that means a lot to me that, that he did that. I don't want to leave that out for anybody who think, to think ill of him. So anyway, I went to my first meeting. I was in therapy and my therapist happened to be in the program as well. And I'm sure I wasn't fooling him. You know, I'm sure I came into plenty of appointments just reeking of alcohol, hungover. And I think he was probably just waiting. So when I told him what happened, he suggested that I go try a meeting. So I went to a meeting in my little hometown, uh, which is a very, it's a little uh, blue collar steel town. And I went to a clubhouse there. My first exposure to AA, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know anybody who was in AA. And again, there was no internet, anything like that. So I went to this meeting and I'll never forget. Well, first of all, I'm gay and I'm in a room full of mostly blue colored men. And I was like, oh, okay, this is uncomfortable. But I stayed and I'll never forget that. I guess he was an old timer, came up to me after the meeting and said, you know, if you're going to go drink again, you may as well take a gun and just put it to your head and pull the trigger. And I was just like, what the hell is, you know, is this? <laughs> so um, I don't really remember the exact sequence, but I remember thinking, I can't share about being gay. Or at the time, I didn't feel comfortable. You know, I was just newly out. I was like, I will definitely get beat up. So, and I thought, well, I knew there were gay meetings in the city, in Philly. It's a bit of a drive. But anyway, I thought, okay, I guess I'll just have to go to the city if I want a gay meeting. But I actually found one that was literally 10 minutes from where I lived, which was completely unexpected. So finding that meeting made a uh, huge difference because I was able to connect with people comfortably and I was able to share comfortably. So that was my first meetings with, with AA, my first dealings with. So I, you know, I got a sponsor, I worked steps, and I just kept doing it. I had a relationship disaster in the middle of that when I was about, I forget how long it was, but uh, five, six, seven years sober, a really, really bad breakup. But I was just working. And for me, it was all about the meetings, going to meetings and uh, reaching out and connecting with people. Well, in 1999, I started dating my partner, um, and it, who he grew up in Pittsburgh, but his dad's Canadian, and if you have one Canadian parent, you can claim citizenship, which he had done many, many years ago. So he had Canadian citizenship. He was looking to move up there for a, a bunch of different reasons, and he's like, so do you want to move to Canada? And um, kind of threw caution to the wind, and, uh, you know, after a couple exploratory trips, we moved to Canada uh, in 2004 to Toronto, the city. What was interesting when I got there, so I was 11, 12 years sober at the time, and one of the first thoughts I had was, I could drink. How often do you move to an entire new country where you literally know no one, 
I didn't know a soul up here. And the first thing I thought I could drink. Nobody will know. I could probably hide it from my partner for a while. Luckily, I had the tools to deal with that thought. And I went to a meeting. It's a huge gay AA community in Toronto. So I went to a meeting there and I raised my hand and I said, I'm new to the city, to the country. I don't know anybody and I need some friends. Because I mean, on top of being sober, I was also homesick. I was depressed. I was unemployed. So I knew I needed that connection to stay sober. And people in that meeting, I'm still in touch with now. You know, people came to me. I got invited to a party. Uh, so yeah, so I established a really long network, or a strong network in Toronto. So my partner and I, six years ago, decided to get out of the city and to buy a house in a Waterloo, which is about an hour west of Toronto, a suburb. The houses, well, then were affordable, certainly more so than Toronto. So we bought a house, moved out here. I quit. I had a really good job in Toronto. Things were kind of going sour there. So when we were talking about it, I, I said I would come. I was, it was on defense a bit about it, but my partner hated Toronto so much. So we came out here and I remember I said, well, look, I can get a job. I've always gotten jobs. It's not that big of a deal. Well, I can get a job. I did a couple contracts, but I've been unemployed for a long time. And then COVID hits. So uh, we were quarantined. Um, between that and some other things, my marriage has fallen apart. And through the quarantine, I was so depressed like many people were, barely able to function. And I remember talking to a friend of mine in Toronto for the program, and she said, well, she said, I go to a meeting every night, a Zoom meeting. This is when Zoom meetings were going everywhere. And she said, I go to a meeting every night. Why don't you join me? She said, you're literally doing nothing else. And that was true. Like, I wasn't working. You know, we were in lockdown. <laughs> so, so I did. I started going to a Zoom meeting every night. And now... I'm dealing with like the top three or four stressors in a life, as, as you might read. I'm getting divorced. I've been unemployed for several years, though that's looking up. So I will likely be starting a new job soon. And I'll be moving once, you know, the divorce gets underway and I get some money. And I'm broke. I'm literally broke. So I've been so down and so anxious about everything. And I neglected to build a network out here in the suburbs where I live in the program. And again, I turned to what I've learned, go to meetings, reach out, because I knew I needed that contact. I knew I needed people from the program in my life. So that's what I've been doing. I've been reaching out and I've been making connections out here. And like for me to maintain my sobriety for this long, that's what it's about. It's being connected, even if it's just going to meetings. You know, I, I don't do a whole lot of service. I do some, but I always go to meetings, um, you know, at least once a week, usually two or three times a week. I will still hit a Zoom meeting every now and then because uh, there's still a bunch in Toronto that happen. It's all about that. And I'm not dogmatic about the steps or the big book. The biggest challenge was when my dad died, I was it was early in my sobriety. It was about a year sober, and the cancer progressed, and 
he died. I watched him die. He was home on hospice care. And even through all of this stress and everything I'm going through now, I try to keep it in perspective of, I watched my dad die. How many things are worse than that? Like if I could get through that without drinking, through his sickness and then literally watching him die, okay, so my marriage is falling apart. Is that worse really than watching your father die? No, it sucks. It's painful, but it's certainly not a reason to drink. One more thing before I close, I've had thoughts of drinking. I'm an alcoholic. That's, that's what we do, right? We want to drink. You know, my disease wants me to drink. And um, I was talking to my divorce lawyer and got some news that I wasn't really happy about. And I literally, the first thing I thought, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to go drink. I'll burn my life down. And then my partner can deal with that, with a drunk me, trying to divorce a drunk me. This is exactly what I thought. I think that's completely normal. But again, I have the tools to stay sober. So with that, I'll close. And uh, thanks. Well, thanks, Tom, for all of that great information. Like we were saying earlier, nearly 30 years of recovery is a lot to pack into that short little introduction. I think you gave a great view of what it's been like before and now with with your recovery. The first question that comes to my mind is, with almost 30 years of recovery, going through a divorce right now, having those financial stressors, having that stress of moving, which I just went through myself, looking back and going through the death of your father, today, does it get any easier being 30 years sober? Or are you still dealing with the things that you used to deal with in your new recovery? Because like you said, one of your first thoughts was, I'm going to go drink. And I really appreciate that you said that because when I have those thoughts at a little over two years sober, I know that it's like who I am. I'm an alcoholic, so I'm going to think about drinking. I'm a drug addict, so I'm going to think about doing drugs. I tell my sponsees the same thing. If you don't think about it, you're lying to yourself. So does it get easier now with 30 years under your belt? Yes, because as with anything with age, with experience, and with practice, things get easier, especially with age comes perspective. And when I first got sober, I didn't have a firm grasp on the tools. It was, you know, just the panic. So it was just more like a kind of, say, like a life-saving thing to, to reach out. Now, like I can predict like, uh-oh, things are getting really stressful. So I better up my meetings or I better go have coffee with somebody, uh, that sort of thing. So knowing that you have the tools and I think acknowledging, like, like you said, that like having the thought of drinking is not aberrant behavior for an alcoholic. That's who we want. Your disease will always want you to drink. I find sometimes in the rooms people feel shamed that like, that they thought of drinking when I'm just like, that's the most normal thing in the world for me is to think about drinking. It's what I do with that thought and my behavior. You mentioned tools a bunch of times and specifically kind of the tools that you use now. How did those tools develop through your sobriety? Like, do you remember what you used to get you through the first two years or whatever time frame, early sobriety and then middle and then later? I know that even just in my two years, they've changed a lot. 
and that's only two years. So I can imagine that 20, 30 years, it just is in a complete evolution. And I could be wrong. Well, I would say early on, working the steps and learning and kind of being porous and not questioning so much, just, just doing it, the whole fake it till you make it mentality. As I've gotten older, um, it's, I don't want to sound arrogant or flippant, but you know, it's almost become second nature. I'll give you a quick example. My partner and I, like the divorce proceedings have been pretty amicable, but not long ago, he did something that I was just in a blind rage and we were on the phone, even though he was in the basement, but screaming at him, I was just screaming at him and not giving him a chance to talk because I didn't care what he had to say. And I was just, it was that righteous anger that we hear in, uh, I forget if it's in the big book or 12 and 12 and like just diving into it and um, hanging up um, and then realizing like, okay, as right as that, as I feel I was to be angry, I still owe him an amends because I handled that really poorly. So, and I think I actually went from screaming to him, at him to a meeting, which, you know, just kind of destroyed the whole righteous anger thing. So being aware of your disease, like maybe when you're first sober, you don't know that like you got to think things through and that there is another way. Um, so like once things started working, when I was newly sober and like, okay, I got through that and I didn't drink. What did I do? Look at how did I handle that? And repeating that and knowing like, so those tools kind of come with the knowledge of what works. So much of it is, is right in the literature. You know, again, I can't quote chapter and verse, but it's all there. Going to meetings and not drinking is what I boil it down to for many people. So. It's so great to hear that you've kept a steady pace with the tools that you learned from early recovery. You were talking about going to meetings, building that community, building that connection. You talked about that old timer in the rooms, right? Who said, if you go out and drink, you might as well put a gun up against your head. I mean, I'm only two years sober, but I've been in the rooms for like 12 years now, right? So I've heard like one or two of those things. But I'm interested, Tom, with almost 30 years of recovery, can old dogs learn new tricks? You know, I, I don't know that I have an answer to that. I, I'm trying to think of... I think you've answered it, though, already. Yeah, I mean, not to jump to, to the next question Jason has, I'll lead you into it, but you joined Zoom. I mean, right there, that's a new trick. Glad you said that, because you're right. Because initially, I didn't. It's all kind of mixed in with depression and my life situation at the time, of course. But, like, I had no interest in Zoom, and it wasn't until I was pushed by a fellow member to point out to me that I could either sit and wallow or I could do something active and go to these Zoom meetings. And it's like going to any lengths, right? And I think kind of unconsciously that's what I do. I have a rule in my head that if I'm ever out at a function, professional, social, and I start feeling squirrely, I leave. Like I do the Irish goodbye and I'm out. And I've done that. I remember I left the work function. It was in a bar and people were getting drunk and I was like, nope, out. So not necessarily a new trick, but, uh, but you're right. Absolutely. And for me, 
I have two years sober, which means that I got sober in COVID, right, along with Chris. But before that, I didn't have that option. And so when your friend recommended that, how easy was it for you to adapt into that culture of being online? And I've heard so many different people bash it, but if it wasn't for Zoom, I wouldn't be sober today because I needed to get to a meeting. I knew myself as soon as I got a rehab, I had to get my ass in a meeting. Otherwise, my cycle would have started over and I would have said, I don't need to do that or I'll give it a couple days and maybe I'll find an in-person meeting. But I got my ass right there. I got online. I made sure my camera was on. But what's it like for you who has had so much time in in in-person meetings and now having this option? I just kind of slipped right into it. I don't know what it is about me, but I think partly the circumstances, I was uh, desperately lonely. I was bored. The meetings I started going to uh, were based in Toronto, and that's where my people were. So I knew nearly everyone in those uh, Zoom rooms. So that brought me some comfort and familiarity. So I realized that that's exactly what I needed since I couldn't go to outside meetings. And then I would do things like like go to the Philly meeting, go to, I went to a couple meetings in Ireland, you know, just kind of, it's interesting to experience that. So yeah, I just, I slipped right into it. But yeah, there were people out here who like, I didn't see, uh, but I've seen them at in-person meetings now, but you know, they didn't drink, but they just wouldn't do Zoom. I think you're, you're definitely the top three or two um, longest term sobriety we've had on this show. And I'm trying to think of relevant questions for someone with long-term sobriety. Something I was just thinking of, and it it doesn't help people get sober, but I'm interested in is how have meetings progressed, whether it's good or bad? How have they evolved since you started? What's changed? They do meetings differently up here in Canada. I was a little thrown when I, you know, first came to meetings up here because they, I don't know that they do it so much anymore post-COVID, but before COVID, they would would start in one big group and then they would have two breakout rooms or sometimes three depending on how many people were there there might be a step room uh topic discussion that sort of thing and that kind of threw me i didn't understand what that was all about even like going to a zoom meeting in ireland i knew what to expect i knew there might be some variations on the theme but you know it's going to be the same thing and i I went to an in-person meeting in ireland years ago and Again, I knew what, what was coming, and, but I also think that's the beauty of AA, right? It's familiar, it's comfortable. If you're feeling out of sorts, or um, then going to a meeting can be very grounding, I think. So, um, yeah, I don't think it's changed. I think that is exactly it. I was thinking about your question, Chris, and for me, I love the fact that AA doesn't really change much because... I know when I go into a meeting what to expect. And there might be different formats for like speaker meetings or topic meetings or things like that, but I know what to expect. And as an alcoholic and drug addict, my life out of those rooms was so chaotic that the structure and familiarity, as you said, Tom, is really important to me. And quite honestly, even though AA and NA and CMA and all the A's don't have a high recovery rate, right? It's only like 2%, if that. 
it still allows me to be with people that have done this for decades before me. And it works for millions of people. And that's why when I take my sponsees through the steps, I follow the big book. I'm not a big book thumper by any means, but I'm given literal directions on how this works. In fact, there's a chapter on it called How It Works. I remember, honestly, now thinking about it, I would be sitting in a meeting or I'd just gone out again and I'm coming back and I'm like, how does this thing work? Never realizing that at the beginning of the meeting, they actually tell you, this is how it works, right? And so now every time I hear in a meeting, I'm like, gosh, that's my favorite thing ever because I get pissed off at myself a little bit because it took me so long to get. But also it reminds me that if I ever have that chaos in my life again, I have something to fall back on. One thing I I would add also, though, is like, no matter your life of sobriety, like, you're always discovering something new and you're never going to perfect things. Like, for instance, me and step three, I've had a wrestling match with step three for almost the entire amount of my sobriety. And like right now I'm really struggling with that because not only I, I actually successfully uh, turned something over um, and that like my divorce and, and not and being unemployed, I just finally said, you know what, I have to do this. And, you know, I'm terrified, but I know something will work out. But then recently, um, something from my past came up and I've just been kind of obsessing about it almost. And, and it's something like, it's literally like 25 years ago, we're talking, there's something happened that I didn't know about that was very hurtful. It's a long story, but like, I'm really just like, really struggling because I'm just like, I need to let this go. This is like, I thought I had like the, the, the larger picture issue of it, but like this one part of it that I wasn't aware of um, came to my attention. And yeah, I've just been like, Oh, I, I how do I do this? You know? And I, I just, I can't right now, but I know eventually it'll come. And step one, always like, that's a daily thing. Like I love when we read step one and we, my group kind of, uh, makes a point of reading step one whenever there's a newcomer uh, in the room, regardless of where we are in the format. I keep hearing the word Toronto and thinking about the last time I was in Toronto and I was definitely not sober. So I love hearing how it has such a large sober community because now I'm not afraid to go back to that town, you know? And I am very excited to plan a trip. The last thing I want to ask you, Tom, and we typically ask this question as what's one thing that you would give advice to a newcomer? I want to rephrase it a little bit for you. So what's something you wished you knew then that you know now? That it was going to be okay and that I didn't have to drink, that it was okay to ask for help, that I would have community to fall back on and that I would make some of the best friends in my life uh, in the program. You know, you go in at least, okay, my experiences, you know, again, I went in completely blind, not knowing anything about AA and completely out of my comfort zone. So knowing that, okay, as weird as this whole experience is right now with this dude coming up and telling me I should just kill myself if I drink again, that like, 
it's actually the right thing and that it, it's going to be okay. The pain ends. There's other painful times, but that pain ends. That's awesome. I absolutely love that. And I wish that I knew that even two years ago because I put myself under so much stress and pressure and always felt like I wouldn't have a life being sober. I thought my life ended the day that I got sober. I remember on my last run, I was driving back from doing God knows what. And I said to myself, you have to get serious about this. You have to go into rehab. And my next thought was like, oh, my life's over. My late 30s and this is it for me. I'm never going to be fun again. I'm never going to do cool things again. None of that's true. My life is incredible today. And it's because of recovery, not in spite of it. Well, Tom, thank you so much for coming on tonight. We really, really appreciate it. We appreciate you being a huge fan of the show. And it was really great seeing you. You too. Thanks for having me. And as always, each and every one of our episodes is dedicated to the still sick and suffering alcoholic and addict, especially the individual who's going to pick up for the first time tonight. Have a great night, guys. Have a good night. Have a good night. We appreciate your liking and subscribing to our podcast. If you liked what you heard today and would like to support our podcast, feel free to Venmo a dollar to our virtual basket at Sober Solutions Podcast. We want to hear from you too. If you have a comment, question, topic, or would like to come on the show, find us on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at Sober Solutions Podcast. Or you can shoot us an email to SoberSolutionsPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you like what you've heard, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show.